Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles with you, please open to Acts chapter 10. And again, we ask for your patience with us as we kind of make some changes to try to accommodate brothers and sisters who still don't feel comfortable with being with us. Man, we miss you uh, as you watch this and hear about this on the video uh, and wish you could be here and can't wait for the day you can be. Uh, and so some of this is uh, in, in order to help them. When they're viewing the, uh, the video of me preaching, uh, they can't see uh, the things that are on the screen unless we put this behind me. So we're, we're still working to see how that might be a part of our, our permanent uh, worship service. But uh, please be in prayer about that. I just want to say this. And if you're visiting with us, we are thrilled that you're here. And if you haven't been with us in a while, either in presence or online, I'm in the midst of a series called Didn't See It Coming. For those of you who have had circumstances uh, this week or in the last month, some of which we've just prayed about, that you just flat out didn't see coming, for the good or the bad, uh, I want you to know that God has taken uh, a very specific track in speaking into your life, and that's through His Word. And if you haven't been spending enough time in His Word lately, maybe some of you have not at all, let me just encourage you, almost every situation that we experience in this life, God has put a person, a man or a woman or a child, uh, in his story to try to speak into your story. And so I can't encourage you enough. Please, uh, spend some time with him. You'll hear stories like the ones that we've looked at already, about a childless couple who for decades couldn't conceive a child, and then God blessed them with one. I promise you, Abraham and Sarah didn't see that coming. We read about a fugitive, a shepherd who walked up on a brush fire that was burning and didn't burn up, and it talked to him. And it talked him into leading people instead of settling for leading sheep. I promise you, Moses didn't see that coming. Last week we looked at a shameless woman who was caught having an affair and thought life as she knew it was over until she met Jesus. And then she found a life she never thought she could have. I assure you, she never saw that coming. This morning I want you to meet a guy who was handed a menu to a banquet that I promise you he didn't see coming. But before I do, let me start by asking this. Anybody here this week have some lunch plans that didn't go exactly as you had planned? Maybe a last-minute phone call made you have to stay late and couldn't meet with the friends that you wanted to meet, or a customer walks in just as you were trying to walk out, or, or maybe your two-month-old's lunch plan superseded your lunch plans, Mom. Maybe your boss's failure to plan all of a sudden became your emergency, and so all of a sudden your lunch was almost an early dinner rather than being a lunch. However your lunch plans were altered, I can assure you, if there was a contest for who was surprised more by those alterations or who was impacted more by those alterations, I can guarantee you Peter, the apostle, would win it hands down. See, Dr. Luke, a believer and a follower of Christ, writes, Peter was spending some time on the roof of his home in prayer. Why we're not told? Because of the view, because of the quiet, because he had a fuss with his wife. I don't know. We're not told. But he's up on the roof. And he's spending some time up there praying, and he gets a little hungry. And so he asks for his wife or maybe one of his girls to help fix some lunch for him. And that's when God chooses this moment to address Peter's racist tendency. And not just for himself, but for every single one in his small group of the way or the church, but also for this large group of the way of the church that has millions, if not billions, in it today. And he does so by handing him, let me say it again, a menu he didn't see coming. Here's what the text says. About noon the following day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. 
He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. Now it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter said. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. Now, today while you're waiting for lunch, how'd you like to have that happen to you? I think you'd remember that, wouldn't you? Well, God's hoping that we will remember it in a little bit different way because of what we see in Peter's life, not necessarily having to have it happen in our lives. For the next three weeks, we're going to find out that this new menu that Peter was introduced to here had much less to do with what he was about to put in his stomach and much more to do with about the people he was about to welcome into his life. And I assure you, he didn't see this coming. Before we jump into that, let's pray. Lord, I just thank you this morning. Wow, it's just so good to be together. And I'm grateful for the progress that we've made with this virus, something we've never experienced in our lives. And we're still leaning into you heavily for what our next steps need to be. So even as we've expanded uh, the social distancing here to include one service and more people, please be with us in a special way. Please watch over every one of us who've come together to worship. Please be with those who couldn't be here today, who maybe feel a little left out, left behind, because they're still a little nervous about all this. Please warm all of our hearts, encourage all of our hearts today, especially uh, in regards to this very very tenuous, very uh, difficult subject of racism. Father, we're not the only ones who are struggling with what to do, how to respond to what's taking place in the events of our country. Uh, please be with Maranatha the Christian Center. There are a bunch of disciples who are trying to read your word and, and follow Jesus Christ as Lord and trying to be one with us so that we can make a difference in this community for your son. And we ask that you help us do just that in his powerful name and everybody said. The dictionary defines racism as prejudice, as discrimination or antagonism directed against someone of a different race. Now, in a nutshell, for me, I just think of it this way. It's believing who I am is superior to who you are because of the color of your skin or the place of, of, of origin where you come from. It's believing that I deserve to be treated better in life than you are. Not just that I'm superior, but that I, I deserve things. I I'm ought, to, ought to be allowed to do things that, that you shouldn't be able to do or go because of the color of your skin or where you're from. In the time of Jesus, the Jewish nation whom Jesus traced his bloodline through struggled with racism. They believed that they were superior to all other bloodlines of people around the world. Those not of their bloodline were called simply Gentiles. There was the Jews, and then there was everybody else who wasn't a Jew. Gentiles did not have the blood of Abraham flowing in their veins. Jews did. Gentile males were not circumcised. Jews were. Gentiles did not study or obey the law and the prophets, Jews did. Most Gentiles submitted their lives to many gods, but the Jews to only one, Jehovah. And because of their differences, Jews didn't join in business partnerships ever with Gentiles. They never entered a Gentile home, never shared a meal with a Gentile. In no way was a Jew to marry a Gentile. Participating in any of those things Jews believed would not only disgrace them, it would dishonor God. And that was important because when Jesus came in the flesh, he entered the world to Jewish parents. 
When he was eight days old, he was circumcised like all other Jewish males. Jesus went to Jewish school. Jesus attended a Jewish church. He was Jewish in every sense of the word. However, listen to me, he lived his life as anything but superior to anybody. As a matter of fact, he intentionally and purposely lived different. Yes. But those who knew him referred to him as a humble servant, not as a superior saint. But I want you to understand this. That's not how most people perceived most Israelites, if not all. So it was an absolute stunner. I'm telling you. It was, it was something they never saw coming when Jesus, the one that they accepted as the Son of God, when Jesus is the one that they believed was the Messiah, the one the prophets had talked about and promised would come, welcomed other people into the family. Now, I, I know they heard him. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all over Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the world. Sure, he said, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But Jesus said a lot of things that his disciples didn't understand, especially right away. And this idea that the Gentiles could be included in their family, <laughs> they didn't see this coming. Not until someone handed Peter a menu. Now, I know all this sounds probably a little bit strange, doesn't it? But probably not any more than some of our parents or grandparents thought about a black person. They couldn't see a black person attending the church they attended or marrying one of their children or eating in the same restaurant as they did or using the same bathroom as they did or testifying alongside them in court like they could or voting like they could and heavens forbid that they would drink from a water fountain that they drank from. Man, that sounds ugly, doesn't it? Listen to me. Racism is. Not just was, but racism is. The prejudice and the discrimination and the antagonism of black people in particular well into the 60s and 70s was ugly for blacks and deadly for far too many of them. And it still is wherever and whenever racism rears its ugly face. Now, praise God. <laughs> Much has changed since the 60s, 60s when I was born. And for the good. I'm telling you the truth. When I was a boy, it was unthinkable for a person of color to have opportunities to attend the best schools and restaurants and to attend a white church or serve in local office, let alone state office or national office. It was unheard of for people of color to be CEOs and principals and superintendents, let alone head football coaches in the NFL or even president of the United States. And it thrills me to say all of that is a possible reality now. Amen? It actually is becoming the exception that any of those opportunities are denied people of color anywhere because equality in our nation has come a long, long way. However, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Because in this country, even when a criminal with five arrests who's high on prescription drugs and is attempting to pass a counterfeit $20 bill, even when he, regardless of his record or skin color, is arrested, he deserves to be treated like I would want to be treated. And when George Floyd was brutally and unnecessarily choked to death while under arrest, that was wrong. But wrong regardless of skin color. But it was really wrong if it was because of skin color. We still have a lot of work to do when it comes to racism. When a church in Charleston, South Carolina becomes a place of murder rather than a place of prayer and Bible study, all because of some people's skin color, we got work to do in racism. When a jogger's followed and run over and gunned down because of the color of his skin, we have a lot of work to do in the area of racism. 
And I could go on to talk about Breonna Taylor and Trevon Martin and others' lives who've been taken, not because of any crime they committed, but because of the color of their skin in this country still. Now, I want you to understand something before I go a step further. The events surrounding George Floyd's death was not the spark of this lesson, nor the other two that we're going to hear, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks. But they are further support for its need. Eight weeks ago, I began preparing for a series because of the COVID virus <laughs> that I didn't see coming. And I saw the book on Kerry Newoff's uh, cover, and I hadn't read it yet, but I thought, man, that would be a great series for a sermon. And I dove in, found some men and women who had events and circumstances take place in their lives they didn't see coming. And one of them, eight weeks ago, was Peter, as I began to just make a list of people who had this menu that was dropped in his lap that he never saw coming. And I'm so glad that Dr. Luke included it in the memoirs of the early church. As he takes us back and says, here's what was going on in the early days as this Christian movement just began to break its way into the world. And he had to be smiling as he's including this very, very special story, this particular story, to his buddy Theo. Because he wanted him to know Jesus didn't just come to destroy the wall that was between us and God. He came to destroy the walls that were between us and us. Both. The cross and the resurrection destroyed, obliterated the wall between me and God and made it possible for us to have a relationship with each other. But I'm telling you the truth. You're going to see in the next couple of weeks that just as important, equally as important, was the fact that it destroyed walls that kept us from one another. I don't think about that very much, and I haven't until these last couple of weeks. Can I say this? I think we are hungry for things that unite us, and we are tired of things that divide us. Amen? I am worn out. <laughs> I can't watch another commentary on what's taking place with the George Floyd issue and on some other issues. I'm just worn out about all the stuff that's divided us. I want to talk about things that unite us. And that's what I want to do this morning. Peter needed God's Spirit to help him take down some racist walls in his lives. And I know that we do. I can say this. I know I do. And so we're going to talk about racism because God talks about racism. Not because I think we should. Because God thinks we should. Not as a sidebar, as I hope you'll see, but as a major part of God's kingdom agenda. And my qualifications for doing this, I'm going to confess right up front. Limited. Incredibly limited. My understanding of this subject is limited. My time of preparation is limited. <laughs> my perspective as a white male raised in America makes me limited. I've always lived in predominantly white neighborhoods. I've always attended predominantly white schools. I've always been a part of predominantly white churches, except for the two years that I attended Wheelis Lane Church while I was in seminary. My roommate, Theo, uh, invited me to go one Sunday, and I never stopped going for two years. Love their preacher, love their passion for worship, but it was a predominantly black church, and it was just amazing to be a part of. Now, still, most of my world is white. It's Anglo-Saxon. And so I've tried to educate myself further through reading and through listening and talking to people of color, choosing a roommate of color while I was in college, attending churches with people of color, talking to pastors of color, listening to sermons preached by people of color. Right now, people are talking about race all over this nation. And I don't want to run for this conversation because I think we have much to bring to this conversation, but one thing about it worries me is I hear so much of what's being said from my brothers and sisters. It sounds like what you believe and what you're thinking is coming more from your political party or more from, from your buddy that, 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 you, that you met with down at the coffee shop than it is from Scripture. That's unacceptable for us. 
unacceptable. And so God's challenging us. Take a look at what I'm trying to say about this particular subject and put that in the file above all other things that are in your file. And that's not easy. I believe God has given us a powerful perspective about this discussion that, the, that not only the world needs to hear, but I think the church needs to hear again. Now, I'm going to say this. There's no way to cover this topic in three lessons, let alone one. And so this morning I'm going to cover quickly four foundational truths today that I hope will act kind of as four different table legs for what we want to try to build on as a church. Here's number one. In order to live out God's dream for loving people who are different from us, we've got to start with this. God put his image in all of us. Amen? God put his image in all of us. Any discussion about how to treat people, I believe, starts with God who created all people. And to remember in his word, he undermines racism on the very first page. In Genesis 1.27, the Bible says God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. I think that pretty much covers everybody. Friend, you may not have thought about this for a while, but I hope you do for a moment. <laughs> you and every other human being in this world have been made, let me say this, in God's image. Print that on your resume, won't you? <laughs> You're unique, that I'm valuable, that I have worth because of who I am, and, I, and not because of the things I do, or because of my reputation. No, because of what God's done, because of his reputation. And he made me. And that matters. And I was worth dying for, Jesus said. Now, parents and grandparents, we get this. <laughs> because when Lauren, my oldest daughter, was pregnant, uh, with our first grandchild, I think her name's Nora. Oh, Patrick, you, you weren't supposed to, okay, you can show that one. When he's up in that booth, he always wants to slide in a picture of Nora. But before that little girl was born, I loved her. When she was in her mother's tummy, I, I loved her. I loved her before she handed me her first cup of coffee or called me Pops. I loved her not because she sang me a song or because she did a dance for me or because she won in some sporting event. I loved her because a part of me, now, not a huge part of me, but a part of me. Why do I love her so? Because she carries, she carries a part of me in her. And I, I, I can't, I can't explain, maybe I'm having trouble explaining it now. It just, it just, gets bigger and bigger every time I see her because she's mine. And when we start to think about people in this world that God puts us in their lives for just a moment, if for a moment we could remember what's on the menu that God made them in his image too, I think that would be a great starting place. And that's why we believe all people have unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Because God put them in there. We don't have those rights because government issues them. We don't have those rights because people voted on them. We have these sacred rights because we are image bearers of God, and that cannot be denied or removed, ever. Now, people have tried in these governments and through voting, especially on the basis of race, the worst of which happened when Hitler eliminated men and women and children by the millions for one reason, their race. They were Jews. Hitler refused to believe the fact that all people were made in God's image and therefore he could excuse and eliminate those he didn't like. As Christians, we don't have that choice with anybody because as God's people committed to loving his creation his way, we're making it our aim to remember this truth. All people bear his image. Amen? But man, that's hard. <laughs> I make that hard for you and you make it hard for me sometimes. Because along with being born in God's image and its sacredness, we also inherited this bent towards pride and selfishness. We didn't inherit that from God. The scripture says we got it from Adam. Listen again to the word of God. 
when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. And so death spread to everyone because everybody sinned. Now, I hate that. I can't change it, but God has asked, listen to me, all of us to deal with it. All of you have been made in his image, but doggone it, every one of you has some of that sin been in you. You do, and so does your preacher. Adam's act of rebellion led to systemic acts of rebellion in every human's heart since then. And somebody says, we don't have systemic racism in America. And I go, are you kidding me? we got systemic everything when it comes to sin. we got systemic sexism and classism and materialism and all kinds of other isms. We are all sinners that are in need of grace. And so we got all kinds of isms. We invent ways to make me look better and you look smaller. Men have sought to be more significant than women. We call that sexism. Wealthy have become more significant than the poor. At least they've tried. We call that classism. Jews have sought to be more significant than Gentiles. Hutus over Tutsis, uh, Protestants over Catholic, whites over blacks. We call all of that racism. Racism isn't just tied to the color of skin, but the truth is, and I hate this, if we were all the same color, I'd still find some way to make me more superior in certain moments. And I hate that part of me. And that's why I need a Savior and a Spirit to help change me. In the beginning, though, that's not how it was. Selfish hearts didn't exist. Prideful hearts didn't exist because they were pure and we walked with God. But then all of a sudden we thought we knew better than God and through Adam sin comes in and changes everything. And the only thing that gives me hope to stand in this pulpit on this day is still this truth we looked at last week. That there is more grace in God than sin in people. Hallelujah! There's more grace in this God of ours than sin in us. Jesus not only came to initiate that perspective in me, he came to empower me to live it for you. Which leads me to the second foundational truth. That's the only way that we can combat racism. Number two, God not only put his image in all of us, he loves all of us. I know, Jim, we hear that all the time. God loves us. Oh, no, no. We don't hear it enough. Not at least in this way. The most quoted verse of the Bible in John is John, finish it, 3.16. You know it. But let's go over it one more time, and maybe something fresh will wash over you this morning, particularly in regards to one word. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that... Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That was a big word, when the, not just when Jesus said it or taught it, but when the apostles started preaching it. That whoever was a stunner. They didn't see this coming. I mean, that Jews could believe in him and not perish and have eternal life? Yes, but Romans? Cretans? Samaritans? Really? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. I'm going to allude to this just quickly. We're going to move on, but we're going to look at this more in depth next week. Paul says, the scriptures look forward to this time. When God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith, God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Man, for a Jew listening into those words for the first time sitting in church like you're sitting in church, you're going, oh, Abraham was our guy. And for the Gentiles that were sitting next to him, he says, yeah, but he's their guy too. God used you to get to and through to them. But he's all of our guy. Now Israel for a while enjoyed favored nation status, no doubt. It's all through the Old Testament and it started when God called this idol-worshipping Mesopotamian named Abraham and said, through you I'm going to redeem all nations. Now I just want to point this out. When you read the word nations in the New Testament, and even in the Old, because when it was translated into the Septuagint, which was just the Old Testament in Greek, this word ethna, the word nations, is where we get our word ethnic 
groups. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'm going to give them all these lands, and through your offsprings, all ethnic groups, all nations on earth will be blessed. Wow. So Jesus came to launch more than just a new covenant? Yes, that was important. But he came to fulfill a forever plan. Can I say that again? And you listen in. Jesus came and he brought us a brand new covenant, not based on law, but it it was all part of fulfilling God's forever plan to reach the nations, to reach every ethnic group and bring them to God. And he began with a protest. Did you see some protesting this week? You know, Jesus was a protester, especially when it came to people who were being kept from God he wanted close. And that's what was going on with the money changers in the temple. Remember what the text said? He walked into that place one day, fit to be tied, angry. He walked in with a whip, and I'm assuming he used it. He turned over money, he destroyed people's personal property. He was angry, and he showed it. Now, he could for two reasons. Number one, because he quoted scripture. So if you're ever going to do that, make sure you're quoting scripture. Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations, for all ethnic groups, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. And he also could do it because Jesus promised, I don't do anything unless I see my father doing it first, without his permission, without his guidance, without his leadership. This is supposed to be a place where all ethnic groups could get closer to God, and you've made it impossible to do that, he said. And so he protested. <laughs> and some would say violently. And community leaders and the people themselves called his actions rude, they called them rebellious, and they called them irreligious. But he made his point. God wasn't interested in making money off of people. He was interested in making disciples of all people. And he would have a fit when something tried to get in the way of that. Sidebar. Did you know that in 1900, 82% of those who called themselves Christians in the world lived either in Europe or North America and were white? In the year 2000, only 39% of Christians lived in Europe and North America and were white. By the year 2050, it'll only be 28% of all Christians that live in Europe or North America, and many of them will be people of color, not white. In my lifetime, only one in five Christians will be white. Now, I share all that because I want to help destroy the idea that Christianity is a white man's religion. It is not. Hasn't been for a long, long time. And frankly, I'm glad to even be in the mix at all because Jesus didn't look like me. Despite what you've seen in most art or movies depicting Jesus, Jesus was not a white man. Jesus was a dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jew. And he loved me enough to die for me and rescue me, and all the while making it clear, you don't have to look like me, Jim, for me to love you. Which leads me to the third leg. Number three, God has the same expectation of all of us. God's put his image in all of us. God loves all of us. But hear this clearly, he has the same expectation of all of us. You see, a lawyer once asked Jesus, what's the greatest expectation God has of us? He used the word commandment, but I think you get the gist of it. And here's how Jesus responded. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no commandment greater than these two. Well, the lawyer wasn't too thrilled about his answer. Well, who do you mean? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus launches into a story that's probably one of the greatest pieces of literature anywhere because it's talked about all the time. He tells a story about a guy going down the road and he gets mugged. He's left for dead, and two people from his heritage, Jews, walk by him. A Jewish priest and a Jewish lawyer walk right by, and none of them stops to help him. The only one who stops to help him, listen to me, is a guy from another race. A race that he doesn't speak to, a race that he doesn't eat with, a nation of people whom if the dust of their sandals fell on him, he would consider himself defiled for the day. 
a man from that race, a Samaritan, stops to help him. Now, I want you to understand something, church. Jesus doesn't have to go ethnic here to make his point. He could have said, well, then a tax collector walked by. Or he could have said, well, then a prostitute walked by. These are people who were on the fringe, and it still would have been a shocking story. It still would have been a good story. And they stopped and they helped this guy out when he was just unable to help himself. But Jesus chooses to go ethnic here. He chooses to speak against racism here. And he didn't have to. Jesus says, you may claim that you're close to God if you've never taken a step intentionally towards someone who's far from you. But really, is that true? Here's the definition of racist that you need to consider. When you've never been in a ditch with someone who doesn't look like you, you may be a racist. When you've never been alongside someone who's hurting and needs help, who doesn't look like you, there's a good chance you've got seeds of racism still in you. You may not want to look at that, but I want to ask you to look at that this morning. I'll say it again. Jesus makes the point in this text, you can't claim you're close to God if you've never taken a step intentionally towards someone who's far from you. Don't miss this. The person of, of an offensive race is Samaritan. He's the one who takes this guy to the doctor. Doctors his wounds first, puts him on his own donkey, takes him to a place where, where he can heal and says, if this guy has any medical bills, I got him covered. Jesus says to the lawyer, which of these three people, the Jewish priest, the Jewish Levi, or this man from another race, this Samaritan, loved his neighbor? And you know what the lawyer says? Um, the one who had mercy on him? He's still so full of racial residue, he can't even say the word Samaritan. And Jesus won't let him off the hook. He says, you go and emulate him. You go and be like him. You go and do like him. Not just hear another sermon about it. Not just pray about it. Not just plan on it. But you love like he loved. Because that's what we do, because of who we serve. Point number four, how are we going to eliminate racism in this generation? Hopefully never to pass it on to our kids or grandkids. We're going to have to understand and believe that the person that I see across from me, whatever skin color or whatever nation they're from, has the image of God in them. All of us do. We're going to have to believe that he loves us all the same, that, he, that he's given us the same expectations. But this one's one that I think we kind of leave out, but it's so crucial that God celebrates the diversity of all of us. He celebrates the diversity of all of us. He doesn't just tolerate it. I read this in one of the articles, and I didn't write down the guy's name. I just wrote down the quote. Whenever a people group is the majority, it is understandably natural that this becomes the norm. And often what becomes the norm can become to be what we think is best. Can I read that again? Whenever a people group is the majority, it's understandably natural that this becomes the norm. And often what becomes the norm can begin to become what we think is best. Man, I get that. I've experienced that. I've been raised in a culture where white's the norm. All my money had pictures of white people on them. When I went to school, my textbooks had people who built this country, and they all had white faces. And when I went to church and opened up my Bible school materials, all the apostles and the prophets were white. And when I got out my box of crayons and looked for the color called flesh, it looked like me. There was nothing malicious about any of that. But I couldn't help but think white was normal and unintentionally that white was best. I love what Rick Ashley said. I did write this one down. Rick said, I'm so white that when I imagined heaven, we were all white. We all gathered around white Jesus and we sang Fanny Crosby and Chris Tomlin songs in English. <laughs> I love that. He said, but then I read my Bible. And as plain as day was the fact that no particular color or culture will be validated over the other. That every single culture will be celebrated with all the other. Now where in the world did he get that from the Bible? Particularly from Revelation. Revelation 5 and verse 9, John, looking at the end times, sees Jesus and he says, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language 
and people and nation, here ethnicity there, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. I think all of us may have known Jesus' death and his resurrection was for all colors and all cultures. But did you know his heaven is for all cultures? Revelation 7 verse 9 says this. After I saw this, a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language was standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb and they were clothed in white robes and they held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with a great word, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Now, did you notice not all the people are white but the robes that they're wearing made pure by the blood of Christ. Oh, I hope you see what John sees. Not a heaven where one culture is elevated, but a heaven where every ethnic group is celebrated church. Now, I think God seems to be affirming that every ethnic group that he created, every ethnic group that he stamped his image on, every tribe and every people that he gave beauty and grace and wisdom to, that every single ethnic group is going to be a part of his eternal, everlasting kingdom. And I hope that we see that that forever kingdom is multicultural. And our mission, listen to me, is to bring heaven to earth. Isn't that what Jesus asked us to pray? Our Father who's in heaven, please bring that down here. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's because he wants a church, not just there, but here, that celebrates differences, not tries to eradicate them. And that's not a word from a politician. It's not even a word from a preacher. That's a word from God. And where he's spoken, we can't remain silent, church. We've got to be a part of the conversation, and I hope we are because I really do believe we have something both to declare and we have something to demonstrate. I want to end by introducing the two little boys. This is Jax and his good friend, Reddy. They're first graders, and I'm telling you, they are inseparable. They are best buds, and this was taken at their Christmas program this last year. And after this picture was taken, Jax's mom posted something on Facebook that just grabbed my heart. Here's what she writes. This morning, Jax and I were discussing his wild hair, and I told him he needed a haircut this weekend. And he said he wanted his head shaved to be really short so he could look like his friend Reddy. He said he couldn't wait to go to school on Monday with his hair like Reddy so the teacher wouldn't be able to tell him apart. <laughs> and so she went on to write, he thought it would be hilarious to confuse his teacher with the same haircut. If this isn't proof that hatred is something that's taught, I don't know what is. And she finishes by saying, because the only difference Jack sees in these two is their hair. Keep looking at that. Because, sister, if that relationship right there is food, I want some. And if it's food, it's not only good to eat, it's good for you to eat. Amen? For Jackson, Reddy, and for all of us, that has a lot to do with, I believe, the menu in their home. Are you listening? I believe it has a lot to do with the menu that's being handed them in their home. And my guess is prejudice and discriminatory comments and racial slurs are absent from that menu. And I'm guessing that words of understanding and appreciation of differences in people and the love of all people not like us even is all over that menu. Visa, a couple of years ago, put a memorable phrase in my pocket. It's the phrase that helps us remember which credit card to pull out. What's in your? I'd like to put one in your heart this morning if I can. And some of you are going to put some things in your hands today when you go out to eat. And you're going to open them up and you're going to start looking through that thing for what you want to place inside your body. I want you, every time you pick up one of those menus, to remember this menu and to ask what's on the menu in your home. Not what's in your wallet. What's on your menu? Because what goes in is going to come out. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. 
just breaks my heart. It just does. The people who have felt alienated because of the color of their skin, the people who feel alienated because of the little in their bank account, the people who feel alienated because of failures in their past, the people who feel alienated for any reason, that that could come from me just hurts me because you did leave me feeling alienated when I had no right to be yours, to be welcomed into your family, to be welcomed into your fellowship, but you welcomed me anyway. And I forget that sometimes, the way I treat other people. And I want that to help to stop. I don't want Nora or Abby to get that from Grandpa. I don't. I don't want Lauren or Tabitha. I don't want Rick or John or Theo or Cynthia or Victoria to get that from the preacher. Don't. So please, help me believe. Not just preach that you put your image in all people. Help me believe that you love us all the same. Help me believe that you've given the same expectation to all of us. And help, help me believe that you celebrate the differences, not just now, but forever in all of us. We can't do that alone. Holy Spirit, help us, please. Help us be your light on this hill in this community. And that this light will join all the other lights so that we can say in our generation, racism took another huge step back towards never existing anymore. Now, we know that's not going to happen fully until your sons come, so that's why we're praying. Bring your son quickly. <laughs> we're just not good at this. But in the meantime, help us become better. Help us to look at what's on our menu. In Jesus' name, and everyone said.